Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. Coming up on the show, we'll look into the debate over what to do about marijuana edibles and whether someone should be prosecuted over the weight of an edible. You can see some major inconsistencies weight-wise between um, dosage and THC-wise. We'll investigate the cultural exchange visa that many Jackson area employers rely on to fill seasonal jobs like housekeeping. There are no opportunities for cultural exchange when you're cleaning rooms. It's backbreaking work. And a story about how researchers are using technology to peek into the secret lives of mountain lions. <laughs> it's a female in heat. <laughs> Plus, conversations about hate crimes, grizzly bears, and much more. It's all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash haub. Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Last year, a couple of Wyoming judges ruled that state law does not have specific penalties for marijuana-laced edibles. Because of that, a legislative committee raced to try and address the issue. Wyoming law enforcement officials say that ever since Colorado legalized marijuana, they are seeing more of it than ever before. But lawmakers got hung up on how much edible marijuana constitutes a felony, and the bill died. As Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck reports, the issue is far from settled. The rulings by the judges made some question whether someone could even be prosecuted for edible marijuana. The general feeling, though, is that if you have marijuana in Wyoming, you'll probably get into trouble. But what kind of trouble remains to be seen? When it comes to leafy marijuana, state law says over three ounces is a felony. Anything below that is a misdemeanor. For those of you who are not experts in the world of pot, three ounces is considered a lot. This is Laramie Police Chief Dale Stalder. The argument has always been if you have over a certain amount, it's no longer considered for personal use. It's considered that you, you couldn't consume all that on a personal level. You must be possessing it in order to to sell it to somebody else. Edible marijuana can be a cookie, a candy, or a drink that is infused with marijuana. It comes in all different weights and sizes. The key is how much tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, is in the edible. That's the main ingredient that gets you high. If there is a lot of THC, an edible could contain the equivalent of three ounces of leafy marijuana in just a few items or it could contain very little THC. And that's what makes this issue tricky. Chief Stalder had hoped that the legislature would resolve the main issue. There needs to be clear language that if you're in possession of that edible, it it equals marijuana and you can be prosecuted either at the felony or misdemeanor level. But the question is, how much edible marijuana should equal a felony? Especially since the state crime lab says it has no way of determining how much THC is in an edible. 
In November, the legislature's Joint Judiciary Committee randomly determined that possession of a pound of edible marijuana was a felony, and something less than that was a misdemeanor. But when the legislative session started, the Senate Judiciary Committee was talked into reducing that amount to just three ounces. Cheyenne attorney Tom Jubin was shocked by that decision. Well, it's really kind of silly. I mean, the amount of marijuana that's contained in the three ounces of edible material could vary considerably. It could be a tiny amount. It could be a lot. And to simply use the weight of a cookie or two cookies or a brownie to turn someone into a felon seems preposterous. During floor debate, Senator Bruce Burns expressed the same sentiment. He says the focus should be on the THC content and not the weight of the product. If you're going to try and convict somebody of a felony, which is something that's going to stick with them for the rest of their lives, I think you should go through the expense of going to a lab and getting that THC level. Supporters of three ounces argue that it is unlikely that someone with a brownie or two would ever get charged with a felony. Senator Charles Scott of Casper had grave reservations about that. And with the attitudes I see in the society, I think a good many perfectly reasonable citizens are likely to violate this law on a small scale. Some of them will get caught. And Mr. President, I think it's unwise to rely too much on prosecutorial discretion. Down in Colorado, an expert says that those who want the focus to be on the THC are correct. Maka Kalai is the director of sales and marketing for Organic Alternatives. It is a dispensary or a place you legally buy pot. As usual, it's busy. He points to a number of products in his store and says there are some that weigh a lot and contain a small amount of THC, and other lighter products that are packed with THC. You can see some major inconsistencies weight-wise between um, dosage and THC-wise. For instance, marijuana you can drink is very heavy, but it has a lot less potency than other products. He says a pack or two of much lighter gummy bears can be potent, but... To kind of uh, associate those with what three ounces of actual flower marijuana is, it's a little hard to, hard to believe, and it's hard to believe that that would be a, a felony. The legislature could not agree on the right amount and will study the issue over the next several months. Laramie Police Chief Dale Stalder, though, says it's far from a laughing matter. Eighty percent of the crimes that are committed in Laramie are committed while people are under the influence of drugs or alcohol. We don't need another legal intoxicant. Stalder says because marijuana levels in edibles can vary, that makes the products very unsafe. He says they've already had close calls with people consuming more than they should. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck. Speaking of drugs, the number of schools in the state that randomly drug test students is on the rise. Right now, Sheridan County 1 is among the Wyoming school districts trying to put a policy in place. Administrators see testing as a way to keep students away from dangerous substances. But as Wyoming Public Radio's Aaron Schrank reports, the drug testing trend is not without controversy. Last year, two Tongue River High School sophomores were assigned a project, and they decided to tackle a real-world problem. There was a few kids in our school that seemed to be struggling with drugs a little bit, and so we thought, what if we could make the change in this school that helped kids get away from issues like that? That's Taylor Holliday. She and partner Kylie Knobloch are spearheading a campaign to start drug testing all students in sports and clubs. And Sheridan County School District 1 is following their lead. 
Knobloch says it would give kids a reason to say no to peer pressure. They haven't been able to make the change because they haven't had a drug testing policy like this. About one in five high schools in Wyoming do have a policy, as well as some middle schools. Sheridan One's policy is still in the works. Holiday and Knobloch have been gathering student feedback. We got a few surveys back who um, the students weren't so excited about it and thought it was might have been an invasion of privacy. Drug testing students who participate in extracurricular activities is controversial, but it's also constitutional. The U.S. Supreme Court said so back in 2002. Still, that didn't stop the outrage in Goshen County when the school district there proposed drug testing in 2009. Just ask Jeff McClun. It actually divided our communities. There were so many on one side and the other side of the fence. McClun was on the side that took the school district to court over the policy. He thought it was wrong for students to be tested without probable cause. The case went all the way to the Wyoming Supreme Court in 2011, and... The judge did side with the school district and determined that it should be constitutional. We uh, parents were very disappointed in that. McClun is a former school board member whose three kids have all been tested under the policy. He says it may be legal, but that doesn't make it right. The people who oppose the policy do not support doing drugs. What we're trying to do is have something more to help keep kids off drugs rather than a simple policy that really is very ineffective. I do believe that the drug testing policy in our district has been successful. I guess how you measure that success is up to debate. Randy Epler is principal at Goshen County's Southeast High School. Last year, the district required more than 600 junior high and high school students to provide urine samples and 11 tested positive for substances, mostly marijuana. Epler says cops and courts won't find out, but parents will, and there are consequences at school. Certainly there's a suspension from activity participation, but more importantly, there's a required component for drug alcohol counseling. Southeast does not test the roughly 20% of students who do not do sports or clubs. And junior Mary Ridenauer says that might be unfair. Some of the kids that I think maybe should be drug tested aren't because they aren't necessarily in an activity. But for the rest, she says the threat of random testing presents at least one clear consequence for drug use. Kids think about that. When they come upon the opportunity to use drugs, they think, well, you know, maybe maybe I shouldn't do this because, you know, I care about the activities that I'm in. But it's not clear that that thinking has any real impact. Goshen County spends $18,000 a year on the program, about 30 bucks per drug test. And the number of students testing positive here has been steady over the years. When Goshen County first proposed drug testing, Linda Meyer was the sole board member to fight it. She says back then she was asking the same question over and over again. The question was, how do you measure the success of it? And they really didn't have a way. It was just something they felt that was strong and good, and they wanted to continue. But factually, I did not see any real measuring Nationwide, there's limited evidence that these programs work as a deterrent at all. That's according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, which released a report last year opposing random drug testing in schools. Meyer says the district should look for alternatives. Why aren't we trying other things? What other things are we trying? What can we do other than something like collecting urine from our children and testing it? That, that bothers me deeply. 
Despite Meyer's concerns, Goshen County's policy isn't going away, and more districts are following its lead. After lots of public input, Sheridan School District 1 plans to launch its policy later this year. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Aaron Schrank. These reports are part of the American Graduate Let's Make It Happen, a public media initiative to address the dropout crisis, supported by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. When we come back, we'll look into problems surrounding the cultural exchange visa and speak with the director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation about a recent serious bullying incident. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Beck. And I'm Caroline Ballard. Spend a weekend in Jackson Hole, and odds are good your restaurant server is from Ukraine or Moldova, while the housekeeper at your hotel could hail from Peru or Argentina. Many are students in Jackson on what's called a J-1 visa. The program is supposed to allow foreign students to experience American culture and earn a little money while they do it. But Jackson has struggled to fill its seasonal jobs with local labor or through guest worker visas. So over the last decade, businesses there have increasingly come to rely on J-1 visas to fill vital employment needs. Wyoming Public Radio's Miles Bryan reports. Sandra Quadrado is 21 years old and studies dentistry at a university in Peru. It's summer there right now, but Quadrado has spent these last few months living and working the winter season in Jackson on a J-1 student visa. The idea of traveling here in the United States was to know more about this culture and improve our English. But Quadrado says her English hasn't improved much. Same for Antoinette Mendoza, who is 22, studying hospitality management in Peru, and is also here on a J-1 student visa. I thought here, for example, I would live with American people or from other countries, but... We're all from the same town. (laughs) (laughs) That giggling is coming from the six other Peruvian J-1 students in the room. It's a converted hotel room that's now housing mostly housekeepers for the Terra Hotel and Teton Mountain Resort. The J-1 visa program was created by Congress in the 60s to promote global understanding through cultural exchange. Students who come here are supposed to be in jobs and outside activities that expose them to Americans and American culture. But these students say that's not really happening. And as for practicing English, well, Sandra Quadrado says they are really practicing something else. We're practicing another language, I think. (laughs) We're practicing Mexican. Mexican? What we would hope and what we ask is that all radio communication within the housekeeping uh, departments that they work in, that they, they try to use English to the best of the ability. Tyler Barker is the general manager for the Terra Hotel and Teton Mountain Lodge. He points out that the hotel offers six free ski and snowboard passes for its roughly 340 employees to share and discounts on a number of other cultural happenings around town. Performing arts student Mary Sol Barba says she likes her job as a server in one of the hotel's restaurants. But she says her three-person room is cramped, even for Jackson. It's it, it a college dorm room for two people with, instead of two, like, twin beds, it has a bunk bed and a twin bed, and it has no closet. The students pay 500 to $600 a month each for these accommodations. General Manager Travis Barker says he loses money on housing overall, 
but the J-1 students say rent can be a real burden. The hotels promise them an average of 32 hours per week per season, but paychecks vary, sometimes a lot. Here's Antoinette Mendoza. One week I have like 24 hours. So I were like, what I'm going to do now? Mendoza says during that two-week pay period, she made $525 and paid 275 of that on rent. And I was kind of disappointed with that because I didn't expect that. Other J-1 students here had nicer housing and a better experience overall. Many even planned to come back next year. But most of the students I met ended up feeling more like laborers than cultural visitors. The number of J-1 students working seasonal jobs in the Jackson area has nearly tripled in the last decade, up to about 1,000 last year. There is a guest worker visa explicitly meant to fill seasonal jobs like housekeeping. It's called the H-2B visa. But in 2014, the feds only approved about 150 applications to get H-2B workers in the Jackson area. Meredith Stewart is an attorney with the Southern Poverty Law Center. She says her group has been tracking H-2B workers for years. And we were going to job sites where we normally find those workers. And instead of finding H-2 workers, we all of a sudden started seeing J-1 workers replacing them. Stewart wrote a 2014 report on abuses in the J-1 program. She says there are a few big reasons why that program is attractive to employers in places like Jackson that have way more seasonal jobs than local workers. First, while H-2B visas require the employer to pay the cost of their employee getting to America, J-1 students pay those costs themselves. Second, the feds require wages for H-2B visa jobs to be set at the average for that job in that part of the country. And the J-1 program, there's no equivalent prevailing wage requirement. Finally, it's just easier to hire students than guest workers. The H-2B program is capped at 66,000 workers a year. More than 130,000 J-1 students come to the U.S. to work annually. Meredith Stewart says all this has pushed the J-1 visa away from being a cultural exchange and towards being a de facto seasonal labor program. She says the J-1 visa is meant for jobs like guiding tourists in a national park, not housekeeping. It's not a cultural exchange job. There are no opportunities for cultural exchange when you're cleaning rooms. It's backbreaking work. Back at the Jackson J-1 student housing, Mary Solbarba walks me through the kitchen. It's about the size you would find in a bed and breakfast. This is uh, the shared kitchen. How many people share this kitchen? Um, 40 to 50 people. The J-1 students in Jackson I met say they have had some good times. And the Terra Hotel and Teton Mountain Lodge says they're fixing up the students' kitchen for next season. Still, many of the students say the experience was not the cultural exchange that they'd hoped for and that the program is supposed to provide. Most say they would not do it again. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Miles Bryan. Family members and law enforcement in Gillette fear that the bullying of a gay man in Gillette may have led to a suicide. The issue has once again drawn concern about a variety of issues, including the treatment of LGBT people in the state and whether a hate crime law is needed. Jason Marsden is the executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation, and we caught up with him this week as he spoke in Gillette. Wyoming has a long way to go to protect its LGBT youth from self-harm and suicide and, and other abuses that they suffer, but Wyoming shouldn't feel like it's alone in this. We, we do have a higher suicide rate than most states, and there are a lot of reasons for that. But we have a lot of excellent resources at our disposal, and we could offer a lot more resources to, to these kids and everyone else who is who is uh, touched by the, the tragedy of suicide. What we really have to do as 
as a state is dig deep and find the will to do it. Uh, and that, I think, is uh, a complex issue, both because of people having very polarized attitudes about uh, the lesbian and gay and trans community, um, but also because there's always been a, a something of a social stigma surrounding suicide that makes it very difficult for a lot of people to talk openly about. And so when all of those different factors are in the mix and you have someone who's being bullied or is suffering other forms of abuse in their life, it's, it's, it's a toxic brew. One of the things that was interesting, I mean, this was a very aggressive bullying, uh, you know, certainly defacing the young man's car. That seems to be a little more aggressive than what we typically see. Well, I think it, I think it stands out to people as being especially cruel. The reaction far and wide on social media tells me that people thought this was especially cruel bullying. But un unfortunately, um, in my line of work, I hear about a lot of cases that are similarly um, depraved is the word that comes to mind to, to describe some of these situations, uh, uh, not just vandalism and, and vulgar vandalism and costly vandalism, but continuous, repeated vandalism and uh, verbal tormenting, spitting, uh, other befoulment. Um, it, it seems like people really let go of their inhibitions sometimes when they decide they want and need to bully a gay or lesbian or trans person. There are people now after this that are calling for hate crime legislation. Do you concur with that? I've long supported hate crime legislation in Wyoming. We're one of only five states left that have not uh, passed these laws. And at some point, I think you have to say, are all 45 of those states wrong? Like, is Utah wrong about hate crimes? That's an awfully conservative place. Um, why, why are we so unique in not needing to address the issue of hate crimes? Um, and the, the truth is they do happen here. And in a lot of cases, they are this misdemeanor, property destruction, vandalism, things that are, that are lower level crimes that if we wanted to make a point of really investigating and really providing justice in those cases, you have to wonder if it would put a tamper on uh, these incidents that, that can sometimes escalate. Would we take it seriously enough that we might find out who did that to his car and provide him some sense of justice in, in his life as a, as a crime victim? And you never know what um, people could could accomplish if they're willing to look the problem squarely in the eye and deal with it. One of the things Wyoming's legislature did pass and the governor did sign is a, a call center that would be centered in the attorney general's office where folks could call about things like this and, and hopefully uh, prevent a suicide as well. Do you think something like that is, is going to be useful? I, I certainly hope it's useful. I, I, it seems like a, an earnest effort uh, to try and open the ear of state government to uh, what's going on out there amongst the citizenry and uh, anything that gives somebody a resource that that keeps them talking through um, whatever despair they're experiencing, uh, I think that's I think that's gracious and I, I think it's a good step forward. I, I'm concerned that we may not have all the tools in our jurisprudence in Wyoming to give people the results that they might come to expect uh, after they make a call like that. But uh, certainly any step forward is, is a positive one on, in dealing with these issues, I think. 
I wondered if we put more of a face on uh, the community if if more people realize, oh, gosh, I do know somebody <laughs> that's gay, lesbian, or whatever. I, I, I'm wondering if if that was maybe what was lacking here. We need to maybe have more people th- that people can get to know that realize that they're not a threat to them. Yeah, I think the only thing that really changes anyone's mind about homosexuality is knowing someone who's a member of the community. Um, polling has shown this consistently, and my life experience has shown this. People need to understand that uh, the words gay or lesbian or trans are labels and that the important piece of the puzzle is the word person. Um, and um, if, if we could get to a future where everybody who's a member of the LGBT community felt safe coming out uh, and felt that they could participate in their chosen career path without any hinderment, uh, and the rhetoric surrounding the issue could be reduced, um, I think most people would find that they have no issue whatsoever with our community. Jason Marsden is executive director of the Matthew Shepard Foundation. Always nice chatting with you. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thanks, Bob. When we come back, we'll look into a variety of wildlife issues. This is Open Spaces. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Caroline Ballard. And I'm Bob Beck. In an effort to strengthen bighorn sheep herds in the Seminole Ferris Mountains near Rollins, the Wyoming Game and Fish Department has relocated 24 sheep from Devil's Canyon. Transplants from Oregon in 2009 and 2010 and from Devil's Canyon near Lovell in 2010, helped establish the Seminole Ferris herd. But blizzards and years of wildfires reduced the herd. Game and Fish wildlife biologist Greg Hyatt joins me to explain that the previous transplant has been a success, but they want to build on that. You had some success, I guess some moderate success, you'd probably have to say a few years back. Do you think that this will kind of get things reinvigorated up there? We don't need to reinvigorate it. The the sheep on the Seminole side, which have also expanded into the Bennett Mountains on the other side of Seminole Reservoir, are doing well. Um, they did not do well with the 2012 drought, wildfires, and then the blizzards in 2013. But other than that, they have been doing as good as we could have hoped. So the Seminole side of this herd is doing well. What we're trying to do now is to expand that success into the Ferris Mountains to the west. What do you, what do you see as the obstacles to that? Um, actually, there haven't really been any. Uh, the, the transplant went really well. The habitat is in good condition now. Uh, the wildfire that hit the Ferris Mountains in 2012 was not ideal. It came at the hot part of the summer. It burned more of the mountain than we would have liked. It burned more out into the, the sagebrush flats than we would have liked, and it scorched the ground pretty hot. You know, it's it was not ideal, but with the precipitation we had in 2014 and especially what we had last year in 2015, 
the habitat has recovered really well. Um, we did have some cheatgrass problems out there. We still do, but the Bureau of Land Management has been getting funding to go out and do chemical treatment and trying biological treatment on that cheatgrass. So um, everything seems to be going well now. The only thing we were lacking was some low-elevation sheep that would lamb about the right time of year that you need in these mountains, and that's what we just got from Devil's Canyon. You know, the, these transplant efforts have kind of, I mean, I know enough about this to be just dangerous, so feel free to correct me at this. But, you know, the, you've had some hit and misses over the years, but this this one really seemed to go pretty well in the fact that you had 100 sheep that survived the fire and, and all the things that went wrong there. I mean, that's got to make you just very optimistic about the long-range future here, doesn't it? It does. Um, we seem to have found the right type of sheep. Uh, the sheep that we had brought in in the 1970s and 80s came from the Dubois country, and they were high-elevation sheep that typically land at very high elevations, like 11,000 feet or so, in the first part of June, which is perfectly timed for that high country. But for around here, they were lambing too late. We were already getting into the heat and dryness of summer, and we needed some sheep that would lamb you know, earlier, basically be in synchrony with this elevation. And it looks like these sheep that we're getting out of Devil's Canyon up by level are going to work. And, and also the sheep that we got from the low elevation herds out of Oregon. Um, their timing of the lambing seems to be fitting with our spring green up. And that seems to be the key out here. So what will be, I mean, when will you know that you've probably had some success? Well, it depends on how you measure success, but um, right now most of the sheep that we transplanted have radio collars on them with a satellite uplink, so I can check on them every day to make sure that they're staying where they're supposed to, and so far they have been. Um, I guess we know most of the ewes were pregnant. Uh, we were able to uh, do ultrasound on most of them, and all the ones that they did ultrasound on were pregnant. So we expect a good lamb crop this year. So I guess success for me would be when we have our own native-grown lamb crop in 2017, when we actually have sheep that are bred on the Ferris Mountains and produce lambs that survive on the Ferris Mountains. And so it'll be several years you know, before we know whether or not this low-elevation sheep are properly adapted for this habitat that we've got available on Ferris. Always interesting talking to you guys. Greg, thanks so much. Sure. Anytime. Greg Hyatt is a wildlife biologist with the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. Let's face it. Mountain lions are scary. The lone hunter stalking its prey. The scream in the night. But a research project shows that much of our fear is based on mythology and not science. Wyoming Public Radio's Melody Edwards took a trek with the Puma Project's lead scientist to find out how they've been recording the intimate lives of mountain lions. We trek through knee-deep snow along the banks of the Grovant River near Jackson until we come to a heap of bones and grass. It's what remains of an elk calf. And here you go. This is what it looks like. I tracked the whole attack. So she came in from this side and she... Researcher Mark Elbrock tells the story with pride. He's known this mountain lion, F-61, since she was a kitten. 
and she came out of that thicket right there, took a calf elk right here, and just dropped it. Bam! Nearby, a camera bolted to a stake is filming anything that moves around the kill, even though Elbrock says F-61 is done with it. We're leaving one here to gather more information about scavengers because we found that there's actually a group of scavengers that will feed while the cat is present and then another group that will feed after. Who's, who's willing to feed with a mountain lion? The foxes, you would not believe how ballsy they are. The cameras are so sensitive, it's triggered by even the motion of insects teeming on the carcass. But you can't just go out and buy one of these. If you look inside this camera, you'll find it's a mishmash of soldered-together parts. He says they work great now, but only after a lot of trial and error. There, we've had massive failures. I mean, epic failures. You know, I'd buy these expensive cameras and then be taking them apart, hacking them to try to get a motion detector to trigger them. Only 15 years ago, he could only plant a few cameras because each one meant hauling an 18-pound battery into the field. Now it's just a pound, and the technology is much better, too. Soon, Elbrock was catching incredible images of big cats going about their business. And so we can hear them, and we can see what they're doing. And lo and behold, they're interacting all the time, and they're sharing food all the time. Back at his office, we download images of F-61 scraping grass over the elk carcass to hide it. It's just one of a hundred thousand videos they've collected. Hidden in all that is a whole secret world. What an amazing thing to be able to see inside oh, yeah. the den of a, of a mountain lion. I just sat on a kitten. <laughs> These ones are three weeks old. There's a couple of noises where you'll hear the kittens. But that little kind of, it sounds like in the background, there's like a low, a low noise that she kind of rumbles all the time. And that's her. Is it purring? It's kind of a lower version than that, yeah. He says far from being the lone hunters of our nightmares, these are very social animals. You've got these huge male sons of mothers that are have already outgrown their mothers, and the mothers are just rolling with them and licking them. They sleep in these huge, you know, cuddle puddles is what the interns like to call them. And, uh... But sometimes their relationships can get rough and tumble. Elbrock says they might hiss and spit, but rarely do mountain lions hurt each other. So you're about to see uh, one of the most violent interactions we've ever recorded. Okay. And 47 just keeps coming in even though 49 starts to actually physically attack her. And after this, they spent two and a half days sleeping next to each other. Ready? Okay. physical contact. And it was minor. He says the most misunderstood sound is the infamous mountain lion scream. <laughs> That's a female in heat. <laughs> Not, as many people think, the sound of an angry, hungry male about to attack. He says it's time to let go of these old myths. We have rediscovered the mountain lion. All thanks to cheaper, more powerful technology. Elbrock says it's only the beginning. 
He hopes to see it used to learn about the secret lives of other animals, too. Yeah, I keep saying, gosh, in my spare time, I should set it up for pika and marmots and badgers. And we've stuck them in front of fox dens. We're like, hey, look, a fox den. You know, and you get amazing stuff. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Melody Edwards. To see some of the Puma Project videos showing mountain lions interacting and to listen to more of their sounds, visit our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Recently, the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service announced it was moving forward with a delisting of the grizzly bear. As part of that delisting, Wyoming is to come up with a management plan that could include the hunting of grizzly bears. The Game and Fish Commission will soon be holding hearings across the state to discuss that issue. Game and Fish Director Scott Talbot joins us now to discuss that option, and he says getting federal officials to once again delist the grizzly is good news. Uh, Scott, let me just ask you about the hunting of grizzly bears. I know you're in the process of trying to set up rules and, and how to move forward with that. Is that the best way to probably manage this species? Absolutely. We think that uh, public management and public engagement and the management of, of game animals, whether it be deer, elk, antelope, or uh, in this case, uh, grizzly bears, uh, um, is um, an appropriate and effective way to uh, manage those problems. And, and certainly, you know, we have a lot of conflicts with grizzly bears, and, and we will continue to be very engaged with, with the livestock producers and those folks that, that have those conflicts. But we will try to utilize the public to uh, uh, help us manage those species where and when appropriate. Now, how many bears would you figure would be taken in a year? You know, we have um, uh, outlined all of the mortality thresholds as far as uh, uh, the percentage of, of females, a percentage of um, uh, sub-adult males, and also the percentage of, of males that can be taken each year. And to be quite honest with you, we haven't run that through the, uh, uh, the population estimate. The population estimates will change from year to year. And uh, once we develop a regulation, which we have not done at this point yet. We will, we will fine-tune that and, and look at the actual number of bears that we will harvest each year. Uh, of course, as, as we were with wolves, we'll start off very conservative in our harvest and, and make sure that we don't uh, uh, exceed those mortality thresholds nor uh, exceed the level of harvest that would uh, in any way uh, merit the relisting of the bear. You're going to be very conservative no, no matter what. Absolutely. And, you know, uh, uh, we're still looking to the commission to see if and when we, we feel it's appropriate to move forward with those seasons. Scott Talbot visiting with us. He's the director of the Wyoming Game and Fish Department. I want to ask you about uh, just some of these efforts to uh, just reform the Endangered Species Act anyway. Uh, you know the governor is looking at it, and then I know you're involved in a conference on, on different ways to keep various species from getting listed. Uh, you know, what about some of these efforts? We probably haven't addressed this for a very long time. Endangered Species Act is one of the few pieces of federal legislation that have had a very minimal, if no, amendments to that act since its inception in 1973. And uh, I'm very much looking forward to to seeing the results of, of Governor Meade's uh, 
initiative through the Western Governors Association, and there has been a significant amount of public input taken on on a variety of, of different ideas and alternatives to the uh, Endangered Species Act, and it will be interesting to see what comes out of there. Bob, as, as you have heard um, uh, the governor and others say, you know, uh, preventing species from being listed is the, the prudent approach in, in moving forward with many of these issues. And, and ex-Governor Friedenthal, uh, he uh, recently sat on a blue ribbon panel, very similar to uh, Governor Meade's Blue Ribbon Task Force in Wyoming to look at alternative uh, methods for funding. And, and that task force just made some recommendations for um, about $1.3 billion nationwide to be, um, it's, it's a recommendation that Congress will be looking at in the very near future. But uh, uh, that effort will be to uh, enact species conservation and, and make sure that that populations remain robust so that uh, protection under ESA is not necessary. Scott, I was wondering if you would wave a magic wand, what would you reform in the Act? The Act seems to be more geared toward the listing of species and not the delisting of species. And, you know, we, we manage wildlife based on the best available science and, and certainly uh, the uh, the delisting of species should be also based on the best available science. And uh, perhaps at times we get too caught up in litigation over process issues when we have uh, species that have clearly exceeded the recovery criteria, such as the wolf in Wyoming and also the grizzly bear. And, and we end up in uh, litigation on process that uh, does not reflect the best available science on the ground. Scott Talbot, always a pleasure chatting with you. We'll let you get back to work, and thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. When we come back, we will speak to conservation icon Tom Bell, who will soon be honored by the University of Wyoming and wrap up the program. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Bob Back. And I'm Caroline Ballard. This May, the University of Wyoming will award an honorary doctoral degree to Tom Bell. Bell is 92 years old, a writer, World War II veteran, and renowned conservationist. In 1967, he founded the Wyoming Outdoor Council and in 1970 started High Country News. I asked him how conservation has changed since he first came to Wyoming. I was brought here as a little boy, two years old. I was the oldest son, and my little sister had just been born just before that, and my little brother was born just after that. What was it like back then? Pretty empty. I can't believe how it's grown just in the last few years, which is one of the real problems facing this old planet Earth. Now, you're the founder of the Wyoming Outdoor Council. I guess what was your impetus or your idea for founding the Outdoor Council? Well, I had been, uh, I was through with my college education, and I'd been working for the Game and Fish, and just working out around the state, and I saw what was happening you know, I uh, I really believe in clean air, clean water, clean land, uh, and taking care of it. 
And nobody had a thought about that at that time. When you were first starting the Outdoor Council, what was it like to to try and get people interested in this from your perspective? Well, it was like bumping your head against a concrete wall. They just didn't want to have any part of it. You know, they looked at all the open space around us and never gave a thought about what things do to the air and to the water and to all the other things that maintain life. Do you think people are paying more attention now? Oh, yeah, you bet. It's beginning to hit home to some of them. Now I hear it all the time on TV and radio uh, about climate change, and it just gets gloomier by the day. What do you think began to change people's minds? Guys like me needling them all the time, for one thing, just one little start. But when they began to see what was happening with the icebergs uh, breaking off and floating away and the ocean level rising uh, and the uh, occurrence of more and more asthma and other respiratory problems, that all kind of brought about a change in attitude. Do you think conservation is making a difference, that it's headed in the right direction? Well, yeah, but it's not fast enough or it's not good enough. What has the Wyoming Outdoor Council achieved that you think has made a difference here in Wyoming in conservation? Boy, I tell you, I can't think of a single thing. It's just been an uphill battle, slow and slogging along, and we aren't nearly we we aren't moving nearly fast enough to try to overtake the pollution. I don't know what it's going to take. It's going to take some big catastrophic event. It'll be after I'm gone, which I'm glad because I I just hate to see the earth treated the way it is. Tom Bell, you are being awarded an honorary doctoral degree from the University of Wyoming in May. What was your reaction when you first found out about this? Oh, boy, I was just blown away. I have received many honors. And none of them are as prestigious as this one. And I never dreamed I'd ever get it. You know, it's the one that I dreamed about that it would be nice to hold. I'm amazed, uh, really amazed. That was why I'm Public Radio's Caroline Ballard speaking with conservationist Tom Bell, who will receive an honorary doctorate from the University of Wyoming in May. A diversity of ideas is good, even essential for democracy. But during this political season, essayist Aaron Pryor-Ackerman sees a danger when viewpoints get polarized and rhetoric becomes vitriolic. Political elections often produce hysterical statements about the consequences of a wrong choice. We see it every day in our Facebook feeds. But it's not a new phenomenon. Even the nation's earliest two-party election reveals such proclamations. When John Adams and Thomas Jefferson vied for the presidential office in 1796, Adams supporters framed the choice as between God and a religious president or Jefferson and no God. The pious allegedly buried Bibles in their gardens, reports Peter Manso, in fear that President Jefferson would gather holy books for the pyre upon inauguration. 
The nation has continuously grappled with this sort of fear, that the people with whom we disagree not only hold different viewpoints, but will not respect our own ways of life. We may agree in the abstract that acknowledging our mutual humanity is crucial. In practice, this acknowledgement, this civility, is not always so easy to achieve, as one side, eager to articulate its own point of view, characterizes the other with overbroad strokes. An entire newspaper was devoted to just this goal in the early 1900s. Titled The Menace, the newspaper preached the danger of Catholics to a whopping 1.5 million subscribers. One article encouraged subscribers to vote against any Catholic running for office, quote, from constable to president, regardless of the party bringing him out and regardless of the party to which you belong. Acknowledgement of conditions as they really are and sensible, positive action now, the author insists, will avoid more desperate means later, when Rome shall challenge the military strength of Americans. Closer to home, reactions to the 1885 Rock Springs massacre reveal a similar strategy, implying that a demonized group of people threaten a way of life. Newspapers' coverage of the event condemned the murder of 28 Chinese miners by white residents of Rock Springs. But white Wyomingites also worried about how Chinese lives would affect their own. The Laramie Boomerang, for instance, warned that if white men, quote, let this opportunity pass to demand higher wages, they deserve its results. They may as well give up hope, see the celestials rule, and see their families fall to a plane lower than the slaves. How we talk about issues matters. In the Wyoming Humanities Council's Civility Reader, Tina Gabrielson argues civility does not require us to validate another's way of life, but it does demand that we register our disagreement in a way that treats the individual with the respect he or she deserves as a fellow human being. The previous examples draw a stark picture of what occurs when this doesn't happen. Large groups of people are demonized to a point that it becomes difficult to recognize them as human, let alone as neighbors. But this demonization of our opponents isn't the only model available. Civility and empathy, even for those with whom we disagree, can still be part of conversation and debate. Ten years after the Rock Springs massacre, the Rock Springs Miner reported in its locals section that our Chinese residents are preparing for their new year and that the wife of An Wah has a baby and Mrs. Wah is receiving many callers to see what a Chinese baby looks like. A few lines on the second page of the local paper. In the face of the violence that had occurred a decade before, they aren't much. But here, at minimum, is a start to acknowledging those who are different as neighbors and as fellow human beings. Erin Pryor-Ackerman recently completed her Ph.D. in English at Indiana University. She works for the Wyoming Humanities Council. To promote civil dialogue, the Humanities Council will host a panel discussion on refugee resettlement in a live broadcast on Wyoming PBS Thursday, March 24th at 7 p.m. Thanks for listening to our program this week. If you missed parts of the show or want to hear it again, you can find it on our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. There you can also send us comments about the show and suggestions for future programs. We also invite you to sign up for our Open Spaces podcast and other Wyoming public radio programs such as Human Nature. Anna Rader is our web editor. We also invite you to follow our reporters on Twitter and to become a fan of our news Facebook page. This week we say goodbye to an excellent reporter, Miles Bryan will be relocating to Chicago to work for public radio station WBEZ. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.